you need to live as fulfilling of a life as you can and what boundaries have to be in place in order for you to be able to do that. You're entitled to that. You're not obligated, especially to a parent who caused some harm. You're not obligated to them. I get it. You've got an effed up family, don't you? Or you know someone who does. According to some recent studies, 70 to 80% of the population consider their families dysfunctional. Dysfunction could range in anything from criticism, perfectionism, control, lack of boundaries, conditional love, obvious things like abuse and addiction, narcissism, fear, control, poor communication. There's a, there's a big list. And while some might be obvious, some are less so. And I've had listeners share with me that they'd like me to tackle this topic, not me, but like to find experts or know what they're doing to tackle this topic on what it takes to fix or repair or deal with their dysfunctional families. So I was only happy to oblige as somebody who comes from a dysfunctional family. We, I'm one of seven children. Um, and feeling like it's so common. What happens if we were to fix our dysfunctional families? How could that actually change the culture? And where do you even begin to start? So I got fan favorite Cindy Robinson back on the podcast who specializes in coaching parents and teenagers to come back for the fifth time on this show, not about Yeah, the fifth time on this show to talk to us about it. You have to check out my Instagram account as I even gifted her with a five-timers robe, which is kind of funny. But I have to say, out of all the people I know, Cindy Robinson offers a whole new perspective on parenting, on healing yourself, on a lot of different things. And when you see her posts on Instagram or wherever she is, she also writes uh, on Medium or even just hearing this conversation, you'll be like, what? I never heard that before. And then when she explains it, you're like, oh, I had no idea. That makes so much more sense. It almost feels like you're better equipped, but better. You know, like you, it's, it's almost like a toolbox of just kind of consuming her work and her content and what she has to put out there. So please make sure you follow her at Cindy Robinson LLC on the socials. She's onto something here. She offers one-on-one coaching, which good Lord, if you're a parent of a teenager, having someone guide you through that crazy, chaotic roller coaster of a time, not only for your teenager, but for you, that to me is priceless. I just don't know people like her that's doing that or just having that kind of resources. So she offers so much for free on her Instagram account, her medium art, medium articles, her coaching practice. And we are lucky to have her here. And before we jump in, I wanted to remind you to follow this podcast on whatever player you're listening to. We've got some really, really deep topics and big topics that we're tackling and some unbelievable experts and people that are sharing some really, really vulnerable stories uh, that are coming. You don't want to miss it. And I'd also invite you to share this with some people you think might really benefit from thinking through their family dynamics. You can just hit the share button on whatever platform you're on or and just text it out or copy the link in whatever medium is easiest for you. Facebook Messenger, Facebook uh, Post, Instagram, whatever. But I hope you'll leave a review while you're there. And lastly, are you subscribed to my weekly email journal? It's probably the most personal I get, and I would love to connect with you, as it's often how I get feedback from you. Go to allisonhair.com and leave me your email. Here's my chat about fixing dysfunctional families with Cindy Robinson. Cindy Robinson has entered the Five Timers Club. <laughs> she even has a robe. <laughs> yep, there is. A, there was a, a robe. A Five Timers robe. Your fifth time on Culture Changers. Welcome back. Fan favorite Cindy Robinson is here. 
Thank you so much. <laughs> I am very honored. I've never been in a five timers club. And as a Saturday Night Live fan, this, that meant a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking all about dysfunctional families. Fun. Holy God, how have we not talked about that before? I was like, who do I, Cindy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always grateful at you believing in me and my ability to cover topics. <laughs> I, I will say this one is in my wheelhouse, and I don't know how we haven't talked about it before. Yeah, so I wonder, are we all operating in a dysfunctional family? Is there such thing as a functional family? Um. Well, since it's kind of dependent on the person experiencing that family. Um, some people would say, yes, there is such a thing. And probably the people who did not have a functional family would, for them, would say no. I don't know the exact right answer to that, though. But there are a whole lot of dysfunctional ones. So I printed out a list of characteristics or common signs of a dysfunctional family. We can start there. Secrets, denial or avoidance, Conditional love. This, I mean, we could have like a 10-part series on this. Lack of quality time together. Addiction, which I bet comes up a lot more. Abuse. Role confusion. I definitely want to dive into role confusion. Control. And unrealistic expectations. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's a whole lot of families. Because <laughs> probably 99% of the people listening are like, oh, I, that? That counts? But I'm wondering, is there a way to break a cycle as one person? Or does it have to be collective from the family? Does somebody else need to participate to have a better experience? So today we're talking about changing the dynamics of a dysfunctional family. So I guess one, we have to identify it. And then second, I wonder what is our agency as a member of a family to be able to change it? I think it depends on if your question is, can someone change a f their family? Or is can someone change or heal themselves? Mm. Um, because the expectation that we really have a whole lot of influence on others um, intentionally, you know, you just did this how to change podcast, which was really or how to change other people's mind, which was really beautiful. But in reality, what it would take to do that with your family members, most of us don't have the bandwidth, or um, the resilience to actually do that with people that we've um, grown up with our whole lives. Mm. So I wonder about some of the what what do you see in your practice? So you practice coaching teens and parents, which, holy God, who signs up to teach teens? Like, thank God for you. But what do you see is the most common that may not be identified as a dysfunctional family, but you see it over and over again? Um, no, in general, I think some of the biggies that con like consist of a dysfunctional family that people are often dismissive of. Yeah. Um, is having a narcissistic parent um, or a narcissistic family member. Um, also a family member struggling with mental illness that's like untreated or undiagnosed. Um, and then the one you listed earlier about conditional love. I think people are often quite dismissive of that or don't question whether they were loved unconditionally. Is that like a performance culture thing? Does that play into that? Yeah, achievement culture has not made that easier but it's really um because the stakes have always felt so high for every generation to shape and mold the following generation yeah and everybody is kind of living out their experience trauma in the next generation we do see a lot of um conditional love because the parents before <laughs> you know that generation didn't receive unconditional love so it's really hard to act out something that you haven't experienced yourself and that's where making these changes and breaking these cycles is so powerful and it takes so much strength is because you're essentially having to create something for yourself that you have not been given before think mm -hmm. about how hard that is to do right if someone told you build a plane and they don't give you a, a model or any instructions on how to do it it's an incredibly difficult thing and that's essentially what we're asking people to do when we ask them to break cycles in their dysfunctional families how important is it for us to break those cycles and not be dismissive because it's hard it seems like it's a lot of hard, complicated work. 
It's very hard. Um, one of the, one of the main ways I get buy-in, um, particularly when I'm working with parents, is by being very clear about something that's very important to be clear about. And it's that when we think about traditionally breaking a cycle, a lot of us acknowledge that we don't want to raise our children the way that we were raised. So if you're saying Mm. that, you had a dysfunctional family because if it was functional, you would repeat it. Um, So a lot of us are feeling like, okay, I don't want to do things the way they were done to me. But our misunderstanding is that by breaking that cycle, which is what you're essentially trying to do, you're doing that for the next generation. So the assumption is that you're broken and you're part of the dysfunctional cycle, but you can create function in the children you know, that you've produced. So the next generation, it starts there. However, that is incorrect. Mm. <laughs> it has to start with you. So when you're talking about breaking cycles, it's not creating something better for your children. It's creating something functional for yourself And then your children will reap the benefits of that. That I think is probably the hardest distinction that you make a lot. You make a lot in your work is you cannot change. What is it? What is it that you say? Your wounds come back again and again until you heal yourself. What is it? Um, What I I know what you're talking about. What I say over and over because it's true is whatever we're not willing to heal ourselves, we pass on to our children to have to heal for Mm. us. And that's, you can't escape it. It's true. I'm sorry. (laughs) I tried. (laughs) Do you find that in the moment that we're in now culturally, that people are more willing to embrace that? I think people have really taken stock of where they are, what they want, what they prioritize. And I feel like, you know, the scales are falling off of some of our eyes of like, oh my God, I had no idea. And it was right there all the time. Yeah. The collective pause of the pandemic certainly led a lot of people to realize the noise that was in their own heads. A lot of people weren't comfortable being that still. And they realized, oh, there was a whole lot more going on here than I thought. A lot of people felt the relief, honestly, of the pause from the pandemic. And that told them something about how they were living their lives. So yeah, I think a global shutdown (laughs) has absolutely contributed to a lot of people. Um, It it broke a cycle, right? It broke a pattern, a cultural pattern. So it does give us that opportunity to capitalize on that. And and it's easier to change from something that's broken versus something that the machine's kind of still running. So I wanted to talk about specific instances that I imagine people experience when they're with their family. And one of them I think about, I'm just going to say it, like, I don't, I don't know that when I'm with my family, who I love very, very much, we have a really big family, I don't know that I feel fully able to be myself. And, um, and I'm sure they might feel that same way too, like who you are with your family is different from who you are in the world. And it's almost like, well, they know me so well, and they're not that impressed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can kind of curate who you are out into the world. And I wonder about just the art of noticing how you're being with certain people, maybe an indicator of there's something here that needs to be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For sure, um, if you have a dysfunctional family that you grew up with, that's going to be the hardest environment for you to use the tools that you've developed in healing. So oftentimes I have a lot of people who go home for Christmas. I had this a lot when people went home over the holidays and they came back feeling very defeated. And they were like, oh, I did all this work and I don't know if it's real anymore because Mm. I went home and all of a sudden I was back, you know, being passive aggressive or I was back being a people pleaser or whatever, Mm. you know, whatever way you adapted to that environment before. And I'm like, that's like, you know, trying to go straight to the Olympics. Like that's the Olympics of healing. (laughs) right? (laughs) So you can't really knock yourself. Like if you're still in your training period where when you go home, that is when it is hardest to use the tools that you've developed. So you can't judge yourself based on how you are at the lowest and most difficult part of the healing journey, mm. right? So be compassionate about if, if, if you do feel like you cannot be yourself or that you're, like you said, your family 
knows you and they're not that impressed <laughs> if you're saying things like that um you might have a dysfunctional family <laughs> uh, because in general it, that's not what a functional family's purpose is is not to impress one another but right. it's rather to just support and be a safe place to fall and that's pretty much it um so if it's anything oh my god that, yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> no it's all good <laughs> <laughs> but just don't judge yourself based on how your healing tools are kind of being really tested around family because that's the hardest time to actually do it. Let's go deeper for a minute. I know that there are a lot of families that take on different roles that they may not feel like they should be taking on. And actually, the reason for this particular podcast episode is I have a listener who said, I, I wish you'd talk about dysfunctional families. And I have one where I'm the I'm the the sensible one. I'm the one that can fix things and I can't. You know, like I don't I I can't be responsible for it, you know? And I wonder about you know, and I think in in her she said, you know, my my fa- my father's capable but he won't. And so I have to do it all. And so it may not always be, you know, you parenting your kids, but you reparenting yourself in when do you cut ties? When do you take on that role when it's been kind of pushed on you as the sensible one or the mess up, the black sheep, you know, like how, how do you, um, how do you help when, when you have a role that you may not have wanted to take on? Yes. So I'll first kind of highlight what some of those main roles are so that people can maybe hear themselves yeah. in it and then, and then talk about like, what is your actual responsibility so good, in that Cindy. situation? <laughs> Thanks. I think about this day and night, right? So, um, I think about you day and night, Cindy, about how you think. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but so the main things that happen as far as a role that someone gets placed in that feels uncomfortable for them. In dysfunctional families, one is what you were talking about, and for the most part, was is called parentification. And parentification is when someone who's a child in a family gets placed into more of an adult role. So the extreme version of this is right: the alcoholic mom who doesn't get out of bed, and so the the oldest sibling is taking care of the kids and getting them ready for school and all that. That's a really extreme version, but a more mild version would look like a parent who um, they have to console. You know, maybe they're struggling emotionally um, and, and or have like, you know, bipolar disorder and their child has to know, OK, mom's in a manic episode right now. OK, mom's in a depressive episode right now. And I've, I know that I've got to pivot my mood to, to accommodate her. And then um, another role that people can get placed into is, um, like you said, black sheep. Mm. Um, and so that's when perhaps you're a trigger. So oftentimes Mm. if you see the black, if you feel like the black sheep in the family, it means you're the squeaky wheel that came in and started, you know, that basically made everyone look in the mirror at all their own stuff. Hmm. And they want to reject that because it makes them uncomfortable. That's a huge reframe. I never thought about it like that. Yeah, that's the whole staying up day and night thinking about this is how, how I know. I wouldn't expect that you would. You'd have to spend a lot of time talking to people and researching this to, to know all this. Um, those are the two biggies. Usually people fall, if they, if they don't feel embraced by their family, they're usually falling into one of those two roles. So how do you, and some of it might be you are forced into a caregiving role. So if your parent is physically unable to care for themselves and you're stuck, like there's nobody else, um, I wonder about the expectations on that, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, of being present, of taking care of those things. And when when do you just suck it up and just handle it? And when do you back away and say, this is toxic and it's not good for me? And some of it may not be good for you, but you have to do it, you know? So I wonder where that line is. Honestly, that that line's going to look different for everyone, um, but people should not be expected to navigate that on their own. You definitely need support. I mean, if you've been parentified or if you've been the trigger, aka the black sheep in your family, you need help navigating that because 
the um, you know messages and the internal dialogue that was set for you as a child is not going to be super fact based. So you're going to need some help figuring out your bearings and knowing like what actually were the expectations that should be on you and what was not the role that you needed to play so you can start separating yourself from that role. But um, in general, as far as figuring out your line between, I'm going to just say in general, the line between when you cut off, like how I feel about in general about cutting off family versus distancing yourself versus like setting healthy boundaries. um, Pretty much you first need to reconcile what your role was and that it wasn't your role so that you can cut to present day of, you know, what currently should be the expectation of you. You know, if you were parentified as a child and you had to play the role of caregiver and spent your whole childhood doing this, um, if you can acknowledge that, do you really see that that's something that you should be expected to continue doing? Um, Nine times out of ten, not not always, but a lot of the time we don't have to do a lot of the things with our biological families that we do. Um, There are, of course, exceptions. Mm. But in general, can you explain, like, give me an example of if nine times out of 10, you don't have to be, I think it's important to draw those distinctions of people hearing and saying, oh, wait, I do that. And I never even thought it was an option to not do it. Well, I would say call into question, well, what would happen if you weren't here? Right? So imagine you drop dead tomorrow. And what is going to happen with this adult? in your life should that happen and I bet there are things in place there there's a very 10% chance that you truly are this this parents only option but there usually are other options in place and depending on the severity of how that you know parent may have been abusive or you know emotionally mentally however physically abusive towards you or the amount that you're able to give that person um, without them draining your life Um, you know, you really, that those options are less and less your concern. The more that that person really drained you, you really are not obligated to them. Hmm. Like we aren't obligated to our parents. I think we think we are, um, but we're not. However, um, I'm not a fan of cutting people off. Hmm. In general, it doesn't seem prove very good for the, the person who's doing the cutting off. It's not great for their mental health. Um, but it's good to distance yourself and set healthy boundaries. So if you can care for this parent or whatever while having healthy boundaries, then continue to do it. But I think once you can't have healthy boundaries with them anymore, another plan needs to be put into place. And nine times out of 10, there is another plan option, whether it's that they live somewhere else, that they live in a care facility. Um, it depends on the situation, but there usually is some other option for them, but you've sort of taken on the burden of doing that because you always did. Let's talk about what's coming up for me so heavily here is the thought of guilt and shame and the role of guilt and shame over wanting to be there, wanting to be the good family member, wanting to be the person that is not causing trouble. That's really intense. And so You know, I'm thinking about, you know, to offload a parent, and I use the word offload very uh, intentionally, to offload a parent onto a home or something they may or may not be able to afford because you want some sanity, you know? I just, the role of guilt and shame, I imagine would drive 100% of all of these decisions. And is there a reframe that's needed from our thinking over our roles? Yet the reframe is that there were never supposed to be roles. Um, And if anything, there was the parent role and the child role. And it sounds like it's gotten very much violated. Um, But but it's really about that's why it's really essential to do that inner work first and get that support to get your bearings because the guilt and shame is what you deal with when you're doing that inner work. Mm -hmm. When you really start to see what really was your job as a child and how has that role continued to influence your life today. And as you kind of untangle all that and untangle your worth and your identity from this role that was placed on you that wasn't justified, then you start to see yourself more objectively, right? As far as oh, this is not a burden that I'm supposed to bear or that I'm obligated to bear. 
And then you can really start putting some healthy boundaries in place as far as, you know, you, you need to live as fulfilling of a life as you can. And what boundaries have to be in place in order for you to be able to do that? You're entitled to that. You're, you're not obligated, um, especially to a parent who, you know, caused some harm. You're not obligated to them. But the guilt and shame, not only that you put on yourself, but that other family members may put on you. And I think it kind of, it might lead into the conversation over narcissism. So how do they play together? Yeah, narcissism, man, it's a big one. It's it's one of the, the big role players in dysfunctional families, um, whether it be that you had a narcissistic parent or you had a narcissistic sibling um, but, but basically narcissism just means like someone who will seek control by any means necessary. Like control is super important to narcissists above all else. And also they really lack the ability to see What does things. that look like in real time though? Oh man. Um, you've heard the term gaslighting. So mm-hmm. always making you think you're crazy for feeling at all violated by the behavior that they exhibit. Um, manipulative behavior you know uh so like when you do threaten to set boundaries then they kind of go into a woe is me you know mode versus once you um you know accommodate them after the woe is me mode then they go into you know the shame and blame uh, mode and so they just kind of go back and forth between abusive behavior and manipulative behavior and that can be done really aggressively or it can be done really really subtly Mm. I'm, i'm not like anti I'm not a narcissist hater but it just is what it is they don't have the ability to see anyone's needs as being anywhere near the importance level of their own and so control is paramount and so they'll do whatever they need to do to maintain control in your relationship is a narcissist can it be uh, healed or is it something inside is it a disorder like a mental disorder I think eventually, especially with a lot of disorders, we're going to see these types of things as like spectrum disorders. So mm. I could see us eventually having like a narcissistic spectrum disorder um, type of diagnosis because everything exists somewhere on a spectrum. Um, can it be healed? I think it's got to be at the will of the person who is the narcissist. And the odds of them having that type of introspection is very low. It's not impossible, but the odds are really low. Hmm. So in general, what you if you have a narcissist in your life, first of all, they love empaths. So if you're the empathic person in the family, the narcissist loves you. I feel like I might have narcissistic tendencies and empathic tendencies. You know, <laughs> I wonder because I find myself in situations where I'm like, I can I can manipulate this. You know, I can say things. So I wonder how do we identify? Are we are we that one? You know. Yeah, I've learned that a lot of empathic and more deep feeling people are really concerned about being narcissists. (laughs) So basically, one evidence that you're not a narcissist is that you're worried about being a narcissist. (laughs) Um, That's almost always the case versus uh, a more classic case. Narcissist would be listening to this conversation right now being like, yeah, that's not me at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you're kind of worried about that, um, the thing is you you care about your self-interest like every human should, and you have a more diverse range of feelings. Do you feel empathic in times that it's helpful to feel empathic? And you look out for your self-interest at times that it makes sense to do that, but you have that range. Versus when you're looking more at a narcissist, the sole goal and the sole focus tends to be maintaining and keeping control only for their self-interest. So how do you deal with a narcissist parent, sibling, somebody in your sphere? How do you create healthy boundaries if it's something that is generally going to be blind to that person? Yeah, that's why the beautiful thing about healing and setting boundaries is you don't need the engagement from the other person. Like Mm. nobody has to be a part of your healing process. Um, You know, some people may fall by the wayside as you heal and they don't kind of come up with you. But uh, in general, you don't need someone else's buy-in. So setting boundaries is exactly that is saying like, whether you buy into this or not, I need this respected about myself. And the best place to go, um, can I give two resources? So somebody's like, I have a narcissistic parent, I think, or a sibling. Um, Two of the best resources that you can get is um, Recovering from Emotionally Unstable Parents. It's a really good book. I cannot remember the author. And then um, 
set boundaries, find peace. Mm. So if you want to know more, like even more details about this whole boundaries thing, because with narcissists, that's all you got. That's it. If you want any chance of having a healthy and fulfilling relationship with them, it's you have got to set in unequivocal, consistent, clear boundaries with them. I think that boundaries, narcissism, uh, both of those seem to come out up a lot recently, just in kind of the zeitgeist, the culture. And I imagine that setting a boundary or understanding where your boundaries are needed is probably an art form. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder about um, parents or people in your family that are addicts or are abusive in some way. And, And to me, both of those seem to have a foundation of mental illness of some sort. What are your thoughts on dealing with that? Oh, yeah. Um, As far as just the studies that we look at of children of narcissistic parents and children of parents with addiction, the outcome looks pretty much the same as what's the the outcome? What are those studies? Oh, all all sorts of higher rates, higher likelihood for uh, heart disease, um, higher likelihood for depression, anxiety, um, definitely likely to not have strong boundaries, uh, likely to have a lot of self-worth issues. So it looks the same. So you are kind of in the end talking about the same stuff, even though the behavior might be very different and might be differently driven. But sure, at the foundation of, I mean, when you think about dysfunctional families, usually beyond, you know, the narcissistic parent and all that, um, usually at the foundation of it is a lot of pain a lot of undiagnosed, untreated mental illness, a lot of shame, a whole lot of stuff. Um, But you can't reverse heal in the same way that you can't fast forward on healing the next generation. You can't go back and reverse and heal. Um, So you really only have what it's left you with to deal with. Hmm. But yeah, there's usually a reason. And that's where the empathic kids get messed up because they're like, well, I know why my mom was that way, or I know why my dad was that way. So I, I get it, therefore I tolerate it. But you're not helping them at all by tolerating it. It's not helping with the healing process of your family as a whole. Tell me more about that. Um, so basically, if, if you want to have a chance at your parents healing from whatever caused the behavior that created your dysfunctional family, you have to exhibit the types of behavior that would only allow a healthy relationship. And that does come with boundaries. Um, It does come with that open communication. Um, It does come with you having self-love. And then what is a person who has self-worth and self-appreciation behave like? And then you might have the odds of having a positive ripple effect on your family, or at least you're holding them accountable to behavior that is healthy. And sometimes that really helps release them of their chains. I, I know In our family, we've experienced that where my husband set a healthy boundary with his dad and it was beautiful what his response was. And it was like he had been liberated. Can you say more about that or can you share details at all? I can. I just will keep it a little vague. (laughs) Yeah. But basically, um, my, my husband was like, there are certain things that we don't want to continue forward, like wait, things that we did in our family, we don't want to do with our son. And I'm worried that you're going to do these things around him or you're going to behave this way around him. And I'm worried about that. And he was terrified to have that conversation with his dad. But he was just like, bottom line, this can't happen. And for his dad, it really unleashed the fact that he felt like he had to be this tough guy. He felt like he had to be hard on his son, you know, or Mm. he felt like he had to do all this, you know, to prepare him for this tough, cruel world and like, Ever since that, he softened, you know, and we've watched their relationship blossom and and just sort of watched his dad let go and give himself permission that he didn't have to be that guy anymore. He can he can be gentle and he can be kind and um, and nothing bad happens. That's a great place to talk about the generational ways, you know, and I even think the patriarchal framework of, you know, I'm Generation X, so my mom and dad were baby boomers. And so it was that scarcity, lack, you know, be a man, don't cry. And one thing I learned about when I was looking up doing some homework, preparing for this is family rules that were characteristic of a dysfunctional family. Don't talk, 
don't trust, don't feel. That sounds about right. And how many of those did, did your family adhere to? Hmm. You know, I don't, I, I think my parents intended, I, I don't, I don't know that it was normal to have open communication. My parent, my mom, my dad didn't care, but like my mom really cared about the emotional aspect of you can tell me. And I'm like, no, I can't. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think her actions followed what she had hoped because she would, you know, flip her lid if she knew I was sneaking out every day. <laughs> and I was. And, you know, going to hang out with boys or whatever. Uh, I think I was grounded for a long time. So I think the actions were consistent with the culture, with the time. You know, we were spanked as kids. We were definitely yelled at. Um, we were, and, and I, don't, I don't do that with my kids. I mean, I yell at them, but I apologize immediately. <laughs> so it wasn't like it was, you know, I messed up. It was, I'm the mom and you need to listen to me. And I'm disgusted by you until I can calm down. So, and I think that was consistent with the generation. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, but I think what's important to, to note um, so that people make sure they're really reflecting on this is I don't know many families at all that if you showed them that list and go, did you have these rules? They'd be like, no, my kids could tell me anything. Like a lot of people have the perspective that they aren't, If when you say it really bluntly like that like don't talk don't trust don't feel no family thinks that mm. that's the culture that they create but that's what's important about breaking cycles is putting yourself in check of do I actually create that culture do I actually do that with myself so when you think of do you hold yourself to those rules today because you took over for what mm. you were shown so do you currently allow yourself to speak freely about your experience and in, in in this world, you know, do you currently trust people? You know, do you currently give others trust, even if they're going to, because you're rooted enough in yourself that if they break it, it's okay. That is really, that is a really great way to frame this of, do you trust? Do you talk? Do you, do you feel, feel? Do you allow yourself to feel or all the feelings? allow it for the people that you communicate with, family or not? And I, I even think like I, I'm kind of stuck on this trust thing that there are some people that can um, be very private, very closed, you know, whether it's their nature or whether it's because they don't want people knowing, they don't want people too close. And that um, I wonder, you know, tying that back to the family environment, that if you took a look and understood, is that where it it begins or is that your nature and, you know, is that something to be healed or not? You just mean, are some people just naturally more yeah, introspective, right. introverted? Or, I mean, people are going to be predisposed, but they're going to react to the world that they're shown. And man, you have plenty of ways. If, if you're kind of predisposed to that nature anyway, you're going to be shown lots of reasons to not talk and not mm. trust and not feel. Um, that's why, first of all, parents shouldn't put all the burden, right, to, to fight against an entire culture. But it's also why it's important that you check yourself first. Because I know plenty of parents who are trying to create a, a home where their children can talk and can trust and can feel. However, when I turn that question around internally and say, but are you carrying forward the messages that you internalized as a child? Are you, ta you, know, are you talking? Are you speaking your truth? Are you speaking up for yourself? Are mm. you trusting yourself? And are you trusting others? And are you feeling and allowing all the feels? Because your kids are looking at you and they'll just determine, okay, so it turns out in this world, we say things and we don't do them. And so I, I, I just I guess I have to figure out which of the things we say and we mean and which of the things that we say and we don't really mean. There's no way of faking this. So as far as just breaking cycles, that's kind of why I say it begins with you because, yeah, you're, I'm sure every 80s kid feels like they had these rules placed on them and it is part of why they have a dysfunctional family. But the way out is not going back and asking their parents to tell them they're sorry and it's not fixing it with the next generation, but it's saying, all right, I'm going to nurture myself in the way that, you know, I wasn't before. Hmm. I do think that there is a ripple effect too when when you do have some wild family members that are, you know, they are, they bring the drama, 
they bring the toxicity and they're, they're close, you know, like they're closely tethered to you. And then there are other, it impacts relationships. So that might look like, you know, parents aren't vaccinated. You're not going to see your grandkids. I don't want you around them, you know, or uh, which is a very real situation that we hear a lot um, in today's days or, you know, grandpa drinks and I don't want my kids to see that. I don't want you to be around or uh, they're just so, there's just a whole litany of things of, you know, a boyfriend or a husband says, I don't want you talking to your family because they only make you feel like shit. And so it seems like an us or them, or it's me or nobody else. And so I wonder about those triggers too of, of, uh, it seems like setting healthy boundaries, but also it's so complicated. Yeah. I can give you a few tips for just how do you deal with having a dysfunctional family so like you've come to terms with it you know you have to heal first we've said all that but um just some general tips for starting out with that right like you're like okay so maybe I have to set healthy boundaries with them but my god where do I begin and it's hard <laughs> and it's really because like, you're again, standing up for yourself where people are like who the fuck are you yeah against, you know against the most ingrained relationships in your life so if you think about those neural pathways mm, right and your relationship with that person and those are the deepest ones you have. So mm -hmm. doing some deep stuff. Um, but in general, for like starters, you know, to get you started, a few rules that I would say to try and follow to, to help yourself set good boundaries with your dysfunctional family. One is that you really have to start small. Um, you really can't have this understanding that you're going to walk in because you're not. Like if you didn't already set those boundaries, it's not, you're not just going to suddenly walk in and say, guess what, everybody, you know, I'm not taking this anymore. You really have to start small and sort of work your way up. So think of whatever the smallest boundary that my favorite comfort zone is like that challenges you, but you know you can do it. Mm. So find that little sweet spot for you of whatever boundary it feels challenging, but you're like, but I can do that. Um, and start there. What what might that look like? What what would that look like in real life? Oh, it depends on you. Because for some people, that would be. Um, I'm give me an example. I'm just not going to answer calls from family members after three a.m. Mm. Right. So for somebody, that might be challenging, but I can do it. Um, but whereas somebody else, you know, it could be I'm going to sit down and have a conversation with my mom about, um, you know, not talking negatively about me in front of my children or something mm, you know, it, mm -hmm. it would be a million things but mm -hmm. if you just think about anytime you get that tinge you know or like pay attention next time you are around your family and notice what makes you cringe and then you can kind of debrief later of all right how many of those cringe moments could I have set boundaries that could have helped prevent them um you know or, or so, so that's one it's the try and think of what challenges you enough but not so but you know you can do it Another um, really important tip for families is knowing that you don't have to cut them off. Like it's this feeling of like, I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to separate that from them. Doing this work does not make healthy relationships, even relationships that have a chance harder. So but what if they don't have a chance? What if it is a straight up abusive person or somebody that has really inflicted who's dangerous? Oh, you're, then you're going to feel quite liberated um, when you let go of that relationship. If that's no, I mean, like, if can you cut cut off? Like, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about you are not a fan of cutting people off, but you are a fan of setting uh, of having a distance with boundaries. But in some cases, it might feel better to pretend somebody doesn't exist. I don't know. What are your What are your thoughts on it? No, in some cases, absolutely, in some cases, especially severe cases. Mm -hmm. But I'd say the majority of people, it makes them feel worse or weird to cut someone off. And so if that's you, you know, like if you don't want to do that, in other words, um, you don't have to. I would say that in general, we can tolerate pretty much anybody a couple of times a year for a couple of hours. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like, it's cool if you go home on Christmas and visit for a little while, but get a hotel. Like if you're flying into another town, don't stay at their house. Are you crazy? You'll get a hotel or, and just do that a couple of times a year, once a year. But a lot of people are visiting or spending more time with them than what's healthy for them to do. Mm. There are some people that when I'm around, 
I mean, I'm completely and totally triggered. And uh, I can barely spend five minutes with some people, you know, and I don't know how to even regulate myself in that case. And it just completely sends me into uh, a tailspin. And I don't know what to do with those feelings. And I don't know how, yes, I can do it. Yes, it's uncomfortable. And yes, it seems kind of irrational that I would have such, you know, um, such a strong reaction to somebody, but I do, and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. In general, I think with these really complicated relationships, when you're looking at like a one-on-one relationship, Mm -hmm. the, the best approach is to really look at it from both sides. Um, so from their side, it's trying to figure out why do they behave the way they behave? You know, is it a, a, a neurological deficiency? Is it, um, you know, their own pain? Are you looking at pain? Are you looking like a re- at a really terrible manifestation of pain? Probably. Um, and so first, just knowing this is not about you. Like, you're the reminder that someone's behavior tells you something about them. And so often we see someone's behavior and we let it dictate something about us, which is weird. No, their behavior tells us things about them. So getting more curious about their behavior and like, okay, this is the way they behave. That tells me this about them. Sometimes coming just from a more curious frame of mind just helps diffuse the bomb a little bit. And then in addition to that, not only that, because the empaths can do that real quick and then it's, it's them that they don't ever turn around to. Then with you, I remember Meg Gillespie said, triggers are treasures, yes. right? So that person, the fact that it triggers you is that there's something in there, there's a nugget of like what you could still work on healing or a way that, you know, this is the area of your life that still needs some nurturing. Um, so, you know, if, if they come in and I don't know what sets you off about them. Um, mm. I don't, do you have an example of uh, what the behavior is that that's so triggering? I would say that it um, it is with certain people that uh, are really not self-aware how <laughs> offensive they are, but, um, and can be, and they don't mean it, but they just are kind of, there's no filter. And for me, I, I hate who I am around this person. I hate who I am and how I immediately perk up and just am completely repelled where I just don't want to be anywhere near them. And I think even just that energy field too. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about, that where I'm, I'm like, this is a problem I have, not the other person. And it, your triggers may be your treasures, but I don't know how to fix that one. <laughs> but I imagine it's probably very common, that energy field of feeling like, I don't belong here. I don't love this. I hate who I am. I'm not, a, a, I don't feel like a kind, normal, healthy person when I'm around uh, certain people. Absolutely. And I, I know how that feels. Your brain gets hijacked, yeah. you know? It yeah. does. I think it's less about ex- having the expectation that it won't get hijacked and more about being ready. You know, you think about like a, a crew that, you know, after a runner gets finished with a marathon and they come and they wrap them in the, um, what's that, silver blanket and they, you know, get them some water and bring them what they need. Um, I think you need to look at it a little more like that. Like you're not going to be expected, you know, like that runner while running the marathon, we wouldn't expect them to like sing opera, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to do that then. They're the whole means are, it's all about survival at that point. So mm-hmm. not so much focused on being um, this great person while you're around that person, but more so let's try and keep as much of their energy off me as I can. And then when I'm done, go into nurture mode, not why do you act like that around them? Why are you, mm. why do you do that? Oh, I hate who you are around mm-hmm. them. Instead of that, maybe like, oh, I, I hate who you have to be around them. I'm so sorry that you don't have any other choice. I'm so, I know you were trying and this one just really gets you. I'm really sorry about that. Hmm. And, you know, so if you're coming from curiosity about why are they even like that in the first place, um, which low self-awareness is one for me. It's probably my <laughs> least favorite trait in a human is lacking self-awareness. Yeah. So I get it, (laughs) but I don't expect myself to be top of my game while around someone who lacks self-awareness. I expect myself to be irritated and uncomfortable and isn't that good. Do you want to be comfortable around somebody like that? Like, what would that say? That is fascinating. I think what's, what I'm hearing about that is that your body is responding exactly as it should. Yes. But taking a step back 
and having compassion and then asking yourself, I guess, from a place of curiosity, why is that happening? You know, Mm -hmm. and uh, I wonder if there is any getting through that or that's just how it will always be. And I think that's the biggest challenge with dysfunctional families is that it may never change, but how you exist in it can. Yeah. And think about the difference between living in a dysfunctional family um, and that dysfunction still having a hold on you, right? Versus you enter it as someone who has been strong and resilient and found a way to heal in spite of it. And then you're entering that space. You might not like who you are when you're with it, but you'll really like who you are when you get out on the other side. Like, oh man, that that is rough. Like, mm. I'm so glad I'm not comfortable with that that whole vibe, right? And when you see it more like that rather than you, um, that's a much better way to exist in the world. So then the grip that they have on you is not so much anymore about oh, they did this to me and now I'm like this. It's more like, oh, this happened and and I've grown from it and I'm healing from it. And so, yeah, they may never change and they may stay exactly the same, but you won't stay exactly the same. So your perspective on the whole situation can shift and it won't be that bad. So I would ask one question about raising teenagers or kids that are around that age. And that it probably feels now, you know, my kids are not quite yet there, um, but I'm starting to see little hints of it in my nine-year-old that it feels as a parent that you're definitely screwing things up and creating a dysfunctional environment. What are some triggers that can help soften such an intensely emotional time for everybody involved? Um, and I'll throw some resources out on this one too, yeah. Because people, if people want a deeper dive on that. Um, ultimately, what you're trying to create in your household that helps you survive those years the best, both you and them, mm-hmm. is a, a culture of we're all in this together. So uh, the beautiful thing about teenagers and the awful thing about them is they're not that wrong. We've painted this picture like there's these these awful people who hate everything and hate everyone. But yeah, they have some articulation issues and they have a lot of hormones. There's a whole lot of passion behind what they're saying. But neurologically, what what process their brain is going through is actually when they really wake up and they see things very much, very clearly. So they actually have a perspective to share with us that we've long forgotten and we actually felt maybe ashamed of or we shut away or, you know, we just, you know, our adolescence is a great time to start taking over shame and all that. But they actually have things to say and they are profound and they are meaningful, but we have to make sure we've taken care of our triggers and we've healed ourselves so that we can take it. Um, And so you can't bullshit a a teenager. So, you really want to have a, I don't know what I'm doing. Cause you don't, if you have a parent who tells me, Oh, I know what I'm doing. Then I'm not trusting them at mm. all. I'm not listening to anything they have to say. We do not know what we're doing. So you can't fool these kids into thinking that you do. I think it's better to come from a place of we're all in this together and I'm going to try and help protect you. And there, you know, there's, I've got to have certain boundaries for you, but overall I'm figuring this out along with you. So please don't have the expectation that I'm perfect. And I think when we have, we do all this teaching moments and stuff with teenagers, it feels like we're telling them we have it all figured out. Just listen to us. Just listen to us. Mm. But we don't. That seems so much more liberating to admit it. Yeah, it's great. That I think is like the changing of the guards from a generational standpoint. Because it always is because I told you so. Yeah. Because I don't want you to and then you could catastrophize whatever's going to happen next. So, I know in the beginning you said when you're in a dysfunctional family and you're trying to, you know, uh you're parentified, what is the word? Parentification. Or the black sheep of the family. You talked about you absolutely need help. It's not something that you can just muscle through and hope they change. Where, what does help look like in those cases? What do you recommend? 
I mean, obviously you can do like therapy and what we would traditionally think is help. It's also fine. I try to fit people where their budget is. That's why I just share so much information for free because I want that if somebody's really scrappy that they can figure out their healing process on their own. Um, so I try to eliminate cost being an obstacle as much as possible but certainly it's very beneficial to have a paid therapist or a coach like me who, who does specialize in this stuff and, and make sure they know their stuff because us coaches can be a wild wild west and say that we know things that we don't really know um but you can read resources you know and you can um build a village you know build a community of people who are in this together um there are lots of ways that you can not have to do this alone. But that unfortunately is part of the healing process is you have to heal you, which feels very alone, mm. but you can't do it alone. So it's the universe's beautiful gift to us. Do you think some of the, so I'm thinking this just triggered something. I'm thinking about social media and I'm thinking about, there are a lot of memes out there. You create a lot of memes. You create a lot of clever thought-provoking uh, reels and things about parenting and about uh, just living in today's age. But then there are also some that really perpetuate, um, you know, un, uh, it perpetuates an escape. An escape might be, you know, mommy needs a cocktail, you know, l like those kind of things that, um, that can actually be, I think, somewhat harmful, but can help with connection with somebody else of, oh, thank God, it's not just me, you know, like I'm drinking a bottle of wine every night just to deal with it. And I wonder, are there resources online, whether it is community groups that you trust, that are parents that are really trying to do the right thing and, and maybe trying to break those cycles that can be really helpful? If you're going to fashion your own algorithm, <laughs> you know, you have to interact with ones that are going to be helpful. What, what have you found to be helpful? Aside from Cindy Robinson, LLC, <laughs> which is the top um, Instagram account. Yeah, but there, there is a village out there that I feel like is who I turn to, um, to help my feed feel like we're in this together. Um, so I can name a few people there. I don't, I don't have a particular um, like parent group and I'll be honest, either it's because I just haven't found it yet or because um, it, it's, it's, it, they're not far enough. I don't know. It's not far enough along in the healing process. We throw like 10,000 moms into one group together and expect um, to get all solid information. So mm -hmm. I hate to point someone in a direction yeah, yeah. that I don't know it's solid information. Um, but uh, it's the, I'll give a few Instagram handles. There's at underscore peace from within, and that's wonderful for like anxiety, OCD. So if you, if that's how your dysfunctional family trauma has manifested in you, that's a really good resource. Um, protect Young Eyes, so at Protect Young Eyes is, especially if you're Christian based, I mean, but I'm secular and I really love that account. That's a lot of, you know, we're in this together as parents trying to protect our kids from screens online. Um, let me think. Oh, um. Nedra Tawab, who is the author of Set Boundaries, Find Peace, but I cannot remember the handle, but it's the author of Set Boundaries, Find Peace, is a wonderful, wonderful account to follow. Um, trying to think off the top of my head. I don't, I know there's more, but people can always go to my Instagram and look at who I'm following. And I try to keep that really curated to accounts that are legit and share good information. But I do think that we can do that through these accounts. Um, especially if we're scrappy, especially if you're more open-minded, you can find your way towards healing that does not have to look like thousands of dollars mm -hmm. in therapy. So how do people work with you? Oh, you can go to my website. It's cindyrobinsonllc.com. And like you said, my Instagram handle is at cindyrobinsonllc. And you just reach out. And um, I do virtual. I do walk and talk. And I do kind of more traditional, but it's never really that that traditional. Nothing about you is traditional. <laughs> I think what is so interesting about your feed um, is that everything that you say is something I've never heard before and makes perfect sense and helps. So, you know, especially in the field of parenting, in the field of healing yourself, everything seems so fresh in a perspective I've never heard before. But when you look at it, 
It makes perfect sense. So thank you. Aw, thanks. Thank you. such a kind compliment. You're so good at complimenting me. I always leave here with an inflated ego. (laughs) No, it's not. It's (laughs) it's very, very well deserved. Thank you so much, Cindy. Cindy Robinson always freaking nails it. I hope you got so much out of this chat and can apply it in real time in your own family dynamics. I'm cheering you on and giving as many tools as I can find to help you with your own healing. What I've learned is that real culture change is an inside job, and it starts with healing those deeply embedded wounds that are bubbling under the surface that you may not even know are there. So I hope you'll connect with me on the socials on allisonhair.com. Uh, and also connect with Cindy Robinson on the socials too. I've linked everything in the show notes, including my link to sign up for my emails at allisonhair.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.